Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio. There was a rumor that there would not be any speeches at the Warriors parade. Draymond Green said, I don't know if I'm even going to go then. What's the point? Well, you will not be surprised to hear that Draymond found a mic, along with plenty of other members of that Warriors team, and made some uh, noteworthy comments today at the Warriors parade. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. No Jason Fitz tonight. You got solo Spain on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. And the Warriors team petty vibe to winning it all this year carried over no surprise into the celebration today it's time for some straight talk brought to you by straight talk wireless and yeah this was their fourth nba title in eight years their fourth parade and as they hit market street in san francisco there was a distinct difference maybe between the ones who had been there before uh, like Clay Thompson, who was especially overserved, and maybe the ones who were seeing it through fresh eyes, the youngsters. And Draymond, before the big F-bomb that we will sort of play for you here, um, actually had some really nice things to say. Um, he, uh, like I said, he joked about how he might not go to the celebration if there were no speeches, but when he got on the mic... They had a sort of MC situation, teeing up the guys for comments. So it was an attempt to be a little more buttoned up, a little bit more uh, controlled than just letting them run loose with the mic. But no surprise, Draymond, Draymond grabs the live mic and actually says some really nice things, including that he loves to see the championship through the eyes of people winning it for the first time. That once you've won it once, you're always wanting to get that first time feeling back and looking around at Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole, Otto Porter, uh, GP2, all the guys that were experiencing it for the first time really allowed him to feel that sensation again. Super nice. He said some things maybe not quite so heartfelt. Uh, he, He said he was trying to think of the most controversial thing to say, like the media does. He's always ready to take shots at us, and yet he is media. He has a podcast, and he is on it immediately after games. So he is a gas bag media member just like us. Can't take shots at us, Draymond, if you're if you're doing your podcast and making that money off of what we do. Uh, but that all led to this moment where Draymond made sure his feelings for anyone who was not Team Warriors known. Get that sensation again. So um, I just want to say thank you all, and it's always everybody else. I love y'all. Yeah. Pretty much making sure they knew that the whole not having speeches was for a reason. You knew he was going to do it to him, too. You knew he heard maybe no speeches, and he was like, when I get that mic, I'm going to make sure they regret it. Uh, Not the only one to talk. Uh, You guys have to check out all the videos. There was a goat wearing a Steph Curry jersey. Uh, Clay Thompson tripped on a grate and took a woman out. I'm sure that's up on Rex Chapman's uh, uh, charger block right now, blocker charge. Uh, Clay um, also uh, did a little bit of a Michael J- Jackson dance with the trophy. Steph gave his signature night night and dropped the mic. I saw Steve Kerr doing some night nights and wearing the night night shirt in honor of Steph. Uh, but this moment is where uh Steph maybe got a little ribbing from his teammates and I believe it's Clay that you hear dogging him as the MC is asking Steph about getting emotional after the victory now Steph the win in game six you were as emotional as I've ever seen you You cried on the court it obviously was the end of who cries on the basketball court I mean (laughs) crying in basketball 
<laughs> Tell us about being overwhelmed a little emotion there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, of course, coming from Clay Thompson, who has cried many times, including a lot of conversation about him having to remove himself from some rehab work when Steph broke the three-point record, and Clay was so emotional about not getting to be there for that moment in New York with Steph that he removed himself from practice and, and cried about the 900-plus days that he was unavailable. Uh, there's a lot of images of Clay Thompson crying, so uh, clearly just having a little fun with Steph there in that moment. Uh, but, you know, it, it was fun to watch, and I actually am all for Team Petty when it comes to the Warriors. We talked about this on our show a bunch of times as we covered the finals there's so many straw men being held up to debate because that's what we do around here everybody in the media has to find something to argue with even if no one's saying it i didn't hear anyone genuinely argue that if steph didn't win at finals mvp he wasn't worth you know what i didn't hear anyone argue that this warriors team actually that's not true uh, Nick Wright did argue that this Warriors team was never going to win again. Okay, a couple people might have said the Warriors team was not going to win again. But for the most part, it felt like there was this drive from Golden State to disprove any doubters. But I didn't hear that many doubters. And uh, one of the people, of course, who got caught up in all that was Clay Thompson, who during the postgame presser, right after they won it all, instead of just pouring champagne on his goggled head and talking about everyone he was grateful for and how nice it was to be back in the champion circle... He decided to take a shot at Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, not using his name, of course, not giving him the respect of knowing his name, but here's what he said right after the Warriors won it all. This was a collective effort, and strength in numbers is alive and well. <laughs> I can't wait. There was this one player on the Grizzlies who tweeted strength in numbers after they beat us in the regular season, and it pissed me off so much. I can't wait to retweet that thing, freaking bum. That, I had to watch that. I'm just like, this freaking clown. Okay, 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 sorry. That memory just popped up. You're gonna mock us? Like, you ain't ever been there before, bro. We've been there, we know what it takes. So to be here again, hold that. Yeah, hold that. I mean, it's easy to say when you've won it all, but I do appreciate the fact that he waited until the series with the Grizzlies was over, till the series with the Celtics was over to bring that up because I wouldn't have wanted the focus to be on a March Jaron Jackson Jr. tweet. Um, but that got everybody talking, right? So then Ja says, oh, we got some real estate up in their heads. And then Draymond says, oh, we, we changed it. The real estate, we went to Boston. The property was higher. Then they're going back and forth about playing this season and they should schedule it on Christmas and whose house will it be at? It's a lot of fun. It feels like Ja and Draymond have a mutual respect and they're having a lot of fun with each other. Clay, on the other hand, I think he was taking that pretty seriously when he called him a bum. And I'm fine with the Grizzlies talking. To be honest, I get what Clay's saying when he says you haven't won anything, you can't talk. But I like the onions on that young Grizzlies team. I think it's going to be fun to watch them as they try to dethrone the Warriors. And I'm cool with Ja Morant having the swag to get that going. I'm fine with Jaron Jackson Jr. taking shots. I think it makes it all the more fun when we see those teams meet again. Maybe on Christmas, if the NBA schedule makers listen to him. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain tonight, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. That's Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Lots to get to today because we've got Stanley Cup Final Game 3. We're going to find out if the Lightning can make this a series after that whooping from the Avs 7 to nothing the other night. 
We're going to talk a little WNBA. Commissioner's Cup is set. Who are the two teams battling for that? What are the other big storylines, including a Brittany Griner march and some really upsetting news about a long-awaited phone call that did not happen for Griner and her wife. We've got some talk about baseball with Timmy Kirkshin, and we'll get into some of the Title IX stuff going on around the company all month long. So we got a packed show coming up. As I mentioned, there was a march today for Brittany Griner in the continued efforts to get her home. We'll talk to someone who was there and get some of the biggest storylines of the women's game coming up on Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight. ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We're going to get to Kyrie and the drama that is surprising absolutely no one coming from his decision upcoming with the Nets. Also, uh, Atkinson rejecting Michael Jordan. Are there other owners in sports who least want to, you know, make angry than MJ? We'll get into all that. But now let's talk to someone who was there at the March for Brittany Griner today, who's also going to give us some updates on all the big news around the WNBA. It's Ari Chambers, Bleacher Report, Highlight Her, Turner, all the good stuff. Ari, thanks for the time. Sarah, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right back at you. Uh, let's talk about this Brittany Griner march. First, the heartbreaking news that she was supposed to be on a call with her wife for their four-year anniversary, wedding anniversary on Saturday. It would have been the first mm-hmm. time they'd spoken, I think, in the four months that she'd been over there. And there was no one at the U.S. Embassy staffing the phone that was supposed to patch the call through, which is absolutely heartbreaking. Tried to call 11 or 12 times. So that's the backdrop for how desperate the situation is. Months detained in Russia, unlawfully detained per the U.S. Tell me about the Brittany Griner march today. It just seems like complete negligence and overlooking of this black woman, this queer woman, Um, and how many times do we have to be reminded time and time again that the world is not pay mine or prioritize black women. And that is what this march is about, was to bring awareness. I know we've been marching for Say Her Name, um, especially um, until Freedom, which is the organizers around it. We've been marching for years to say her name. And the fact that we've had to march for years is, is just so sad. And the fact that it's the subject matter of Brittany Griner right now and in us fighting 123 days to get her back on the U.S. soil, and we know that she's wrongfully detained and nothing is happening. And, and it's all honestly like slapped in the face over and over and over again. It's a four-year anniversary, Sarah. This is somebody who hasn't talked to her wife in four months. Yeah. In four months. And just yeah. imagine not knowing when the last time you said goodbye to a loved one until, you know, for months for something so, in our in our eyes, so trivial, you know. And, and it's just a sheer negligence. And we're just letting her down as a country, not being able to back her and get her back on the U.S. soil. And so that's what this march is all about. Um, we, it started in Harlem. It, it, we circled um, a few blocks and ended up in front of a Harriet Tubman statue. And it was showing how until we all are free, none of us are free. And that was yeah. the whole tone as, of the march. As you said, Say Her Name and um, other groups are often advocating for the less publicized uh, conversations around uh, black women uh, killed by police shootings or otherwise. And so for years, this has been a topic and for it to now hit the sports world and for Brittany Griner to be the one who's, you know, not getting the publicity, not getting the conversations. And early on, it was intentional. They had hoped to keep it a legal issue and not a political prisoner issue. And now it certainly feels like Russia is looking to try to spin this to do some sort of exchange or at least to uh, make the U.S. 
you know, pay for things that um, are completely unrelated to, to Brittany Griner. And for all we know, uh, she didn't even have the hashish oil she's alleged of holding. That's partly why they've classified her as wrongfully detained. Uh, Ari, thank you for telling me about the march. I know I, I saw a lot of posts about it on social today, and I've been seeing people across the women and sports landscape tweeting about bringing her home uh, for the 120 plus days that she's now been in that Russian detention center. Um, hard to switch gears, but we're going to. There's plenty of WNBA okay. to talk about. A commissioner's cup mm -hmm. between the aces and the sky. A very important matchup on this year's show. If Fitz was around, he'd be telling you all about his Vegas squad. And of course, my sky are the <laughs> defending champions of the WNBA. Tell people about the commissioner's cup in this matchup. Hilarious, because, uh, you know, I'm with you, Sarah, on that. Uh, I predicted that Chicago would be in a position mm -hmm. of this, and that's exactly where they are. And the Commissioner's Cup is just a fun way to get back the rivalry of the East and the West. It's the best regular season East versus the best regular season West and through select games. And there's a monetary gain from it as well. And so just seeing this matchup, the, the Aces, who is a team who's playing with a chip on their shoulder and finally able to play the system they want to play under the leadership of Becky Hammond. We see how they've gelled as a team. Their chemistry is impeccable. And a Chicago Sky team who is fighting for their spot back. I really think this could be a potential finals matchup this year. And, you know, nobody's gone back-to-back -back, um, since the Sparks did it in 01 and 02. So, I just am really, really excited to see what this brings. It's a super competitive spirit. We all thought, you know, a lot of people thought Connecticut was going to be in, and a lot of, you know, it was last year. Connecticut was in the inaugural game, and Seattle was um, their content contender, and Seattle pulled it out. But um, this year, Connecticut has been plagued with injuries like Jasmine Thomas, and Chicago was able to, you know, get that top spot. Yeah, we talk about sometimes the WNBA as a – uh, a place for the NBA to test things out and this in-season tournament with stakes, with uh, money going to players is obviously something they've floated the idea of doing at the NBA level as well. So the Commissioner's Cup in its second year, that's going to be uh, a, a good one for Fitz and I'm probably not going to bet anything because uh, he never pays up on his bets. So there's really no upside to me. I'm always on the winning side and not receiving anything, but uh, at least for bragging rights, July 26th, Sky Aces for that Commissioner's Cup. We're talking to Ari Chambers, Turner Sports Bleacher Report at Highlight Her on Instagram, her fantastic Instagram. Go follow that. Speaking of the sky, uh, quickly, like without Candace Parker, depending on that knee and how long it keeps her out, what does that mean for this team? I know they managed to uh, weather the storm last year and come back in a big way in the playoffs, but they lost her for a big chunk, and that was why they came in with such a bad record to the postseason. Yeah, last year was a slippery slope without her, but the team has matured, and there's more trust in the bench than they had. Um, this time last season. So I'm not anticipating the seven-game losing streak like last year. I think they can recover, and they have um, the veteran experience, the, the team chemistry, the team talent, the additive pieces to not go down that road. But Candace, it's no secret that she's a huge, huge part of that team. Her presence alone draws so much attention and draws so much cohesion within our team and so much intimidation um, to other teams. And so I'm praying for her to have a speedy recovery, but I don't anticipate it to be the same result as last year. Yeah, you got Emma Miesman added to the team. They've got all these WNBA Finals MVPs and some real strength to take over while Candace is out. Hopefully she'll be back soon. Uh, the Aces currently number one in the power rankings and ahead of the sky are that Connecticut Sun that you mentioned. As far as the injuries go, how serious are they in terms of potentially being really felt in that, in that record over the next couple weeks? 
Connecticut's really hungry for it. Connecticut, despite Jasmine Thomas being out, you have Alyssa Thomas back. You have Jean-Claude Jones, who is an MVP. Brianna Jones, who is most improved. You have Dewana Bonner, who is a multi-all-star. Connecticut has those pieces. But I'm looking toward the aces. You have Asia, who's been great. She's an MVP candidate playing dominant basketball. She expanded her shot and finally allowed to really shoot the shot that she wants to shoot. Like, she's getting in the right position to shoot it. They run. This is Asia's team, and it's very, very evident. And she's great on defense. And her block, she's, she's I think, 2.5 blocks a season averaging. And that's up from 1.3 blocks last season. So just knowing that Asia's constantly improving and she's able to take leadership like she can. And it's not a, such a crowded space. And the offense can move fluidly through her. And then you have an improved Jackie Young and Kelsey Plum, who are super confident this year. De'Erica Hamble, who's also consistent. It's just a joy to watch the Aces basketball. But as far as Connecticut, I want to see how they're going to be able to pull it through without Jasmine Thomas. Yeah, you mentioned it. Asia Wilson's been just fantastic. She is a machine right now. And that's mm-hmm. uh, that's tough to contend with with a strong Aces team. And as you mentioned, Becky Hammond trying to make a statement in her first year with that big paycheck and that big opportunity for her to make a statement in the, in the W. Uh, pretty good. Pretty Period. good. Um, <laughs> what's one player that we're not talking about enough? We're not talking about Jackie Young enough. I know we know that she's improving, but, you know, I think she's been slept on a lot, and Jackie Young, pay mind to her. Also, Brianna Turner. She's one of those ones who consistently does the work, consistently does the work and gets overlooked. And so I'm looking at Brianna Turner for how we, we already know what Skylar Diggins-Smith brings to that team. We already know the Diana Taurasi effect on people. But Brianna Turner has been so silently consistent throughout these whole years that I think, like, on defense especially, her length is just there. And she's such an asset to that team. So hopefully she'll be the main person to um, help turn around Phoenix. And we see glimpses of that now. Awesome stuff, Ari. Looking forward to hanging when the WNBA All-Star Game is here in my city of Chicago in a couple weeks. Yes. Keep up the awesome work. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Ari Chambers. You can follow her at Ari Ivory. Of course, follow at Highlight Her on Instagram. Check out her stuff on Turner and Bleacher Report. Some interesting stuff in the W this year. If you're just catching up now with the NBA out, two you know powerhouse teams that are usually in the mix or have been in the history of the league in the Lynx and the Sparks are currently sitting at the bottom of the rankings. So there's some fresh teams, some young teams, some teams that have made some switches in their roster that are currently trying to um, shake things up. So keep an eye on that. Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more at Progressive.com. Coming up on this solo Spain edition, what are the keys for a Lightning team that is facing an 0-3 hole if they lose a critical game three tonight? We'll get an expert to tell us next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. There's that old saying that a series till uh, doesn't start till a team loses at home. But today on Around the Horn, Frank Isola argued, it also starts when you lose seven to nothing in hockey. We'll see if our next guest agrees. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. And Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer, is back with us to talk about tonight's Game 3. Wish, would you consider this series started because of the game two beatdown, or do we have to give the Lightning a chance to hold court at home? No, I actually, here's here's what I think. I don't think a series has started until you've seen a team actually get through ten minutes of the first period without going down by multiple <laughs> right, goals, right. taking a horrible penalty. Because honestly, like. Here's the thing. The Lightning are convinced that they can play this, this avalanche team, that they can keep up with them, that they can neutralize their speed advantage 
that they could hang with the best offensive team that we've seen since the 1980s in the playoffs. The problem is, is that they didn't get a chance to prove any of that in game two because they were already down 3 nothing 13 minutes into the first period. So that's the thing I'm looking for tonight. More than anything else about home ice or anything else, just show me that you can get through the first 10 minutes of the game without <laughs> digging yourself a hole, and then let's see what you've actually got. 8 p.m. Eastern start on ABC and ESPN Plus for this Game 3. I think the worst possible scenario, and you and I talked about this before the series started. I said the only way I might see the rust come into play is if the Avs look rusty for the beginning of the series, the first game or two, but then their legs are much better off than the Lightning in the later games because the Lightning took so much longer to dispatch of their opponents. The worst possible scenario for the Lightning is that the Avs' only rust was that game one, which they still ended up winning in overtime, and that game two was an accurate representation of the matchup. Do you think that's possible, that this Avs team is just too fast, too deep, too good offensively for this Lightning team? Yeah, I'm like 30% that the Avalanche are an absolute like steamroller with <laughs> buzz saws for wheels. Like, like There's a chance we might be seeing... And we've seen it before in the Stanley Cup final, too. I mean, like the Detroit Red Wings that were a team like this, a few other teams have been like this that are just like unstoppable. Like they've clicked right. at the right time. But I'm also 70% that, that this is a, still going to be a series. And you bring up the fatigue factor. Like I think it's a little bit overstated in watching the first two games of the series because the Lightning have had to expend so much energy getting back into these games and mm -hmm. chasing down the Avalanche. You know, their coach, John Cooper, I think, struck the right note today, which is to say it'd be nice to see the Avalanche have to chase the game a little bit and not us so much. And I think if that happens, we'll, we'll be having a, a, maybe a little bit of a different conversation on, on energy expenditure. But your ultimate point is an important one, which is that the deeper the series gets, the more that'll come into play because the Lightning have certainly played more playoff games than have the Colorado Avalanche in this postseason. I think the terrible starts have been obvious, why is it that some of the things that have been effective for the Lightning in the past aren't working? Like, they, they can't establish their forecheck. Why, is that just a matter of personnel? It's not a matter of personnel. It's a matter of tr trying to figure out exactly what the Avalanche are doing. I think the Avalanche's speed, for example, really does interrupt the, the, the passes out of the, the, the zone exits for the Lightning out of their own zone to kind of get to their offense. They're having a lot of trouble um, like you said, getting the puck behind the Avalanche defenders to then establish their forecheck and, and really neutralize Colorado's speed by doing that. And maybe most disturbingly, um, Andre Vasilevsky has not been himself in this series. I yeah. mean, you know, he has been the backbone, the guy who is the, is the player who makes sure that game two isn't a 7 nothing game after losing game one. And, and, you know, they've been able to rely on him for the last two years in the back-to-back -back cups. They relied on him through most of these playoffs as well. It's not as if this is all on him. The Lightning to a man after game two said we hung him out to dry. Um, but he needs to be better. And more than anything else, I think the team needs to be better in front of him. And that's one of the things that, that our captain, Stephen Samko, has said after game two, which is that, you know, he's, he's done so much for us through the years that, that maybe it's, it's time for us to, to give a little back to the guy and play a little bit better D in front of him. Yeah, I mean, absolutely that matters. And, of course, when you're down early like they were in that game, too, and it just didn't feel like their night, you get a little bit looser about, oh, we've already lost this one, and that doesn't help Vasilevsky's numbers or confidence. But he was a huge part of why people believed that the Lightning could actually beat a team like the Avs that, that had it's an insane, I think their goal differential in the playoffs right now is 33 or something like that, just an yeah. offensive juggernaut. And it was all on Vasilevsky, so... 
how much of a balance do you think there is right now between he's still going to be great, he just needs better defense, or where you're actually worried about something's different, he's not right? Well, I, I, I do. I'm a little worried about him. I mean, he, he hasn't really been his dominant self, um, you know, especially early in these games, and that's kind of when they beat him the most. But the biggest thing for me right now in watching the Lightning tonight and seeing if they're going to be able to rally in this thing is, you know, getting to their game, uh, getting more than 16 shots like they had last game, which is obviously not going to get it done. And then also hoping to uh, get their, uh, get the line matchups that they want. That's going to be a real key for this game too. Like the Stamkos line with Kucherov got absolutely rolled in the first two games of the series because they were being matched up against Nathan McKinnon's line. And I think McKinnon's line had something ridiculous, like a 19 to three shot attempt advantage over the, the lightning when they were on the ice. So, Line matchups were very big in the Rangers series, the Lightning getting the matchups they wanted, and I think it's going to be a real key tonight as well. Yeah, one of your great – and Greg Wyshynski with us here on Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight, at Wyshynski is where you can follow him. Uh, great line in your story previewing this, this game tonight. Uh, you said the avalanche offensive chances, their shot attempt heat map looked like the surface of the sun, and the Lightning <laughs> dripped a melting lime popsicle in the offensive zone. So explain what's happening in terms of, or at least in game two, in terms of the Avs' chances. Yeah, I mean, they, they're getting in on Vasilevsky and getting uh, high-danger scoring opportunities. They're getting rush opportunities. They're basically getting every type of offensive chance that you could imagine they're getting it against this Lightning defense. And again, it all tracks back to the Lightning's inability to slow them down, to play the game at the pace that they want to play at. And, and again, that's the real key for tonight. It's puck possession. Uh, puck possession for the Lightning means that the Avalanche can't play at the speed they want to play at. Puck possession for the Lightning means they get actual shots on goal. I was in the elevator down to the interviews after game two when they announced Darcy Kemper, the Colorado goalie, was one of the three stars of the game for making 16 saves. And I turned to the guy next to me. I'm like, mm. I can't tell you any of those saves. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if they happened. So the Lightning have to be a lot more dangerous in the offensive zone, too. And if they are, then, then it's going to help neutralize what the Avalanche do so, so well in this series. 8 p.m. Eastern on ABC and ESPN Plus for Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final. The Avalanche up 2-0 on the two-time defending champion Lightning. Who are you looking at on this Lightning team and saying, listen, you've been here before, you've done it two years in a row. It's on you not just to win the game, but start simple. Just not let the beginning of this game get out of hand. It's two, it's two lines. I mean, individually, I'd have to say that Nikita Kucherov is of great concern for me right now. He didn't have a shot attempt in Game 2. Uh, again, did not get the matchup they wanted with the McKinnon line. If they can get some favorable matchups tonight, he could be an absolute difference maker, and he, ha- he has been throughout these playoffs as their leading scorer. And then conversely, the line of Anthony Sorelli, Alex Kalorn, and Brandon Hagel, if they're kept together tonight, that's one that's going to be really interesting. That was the line they deployed against Mika Zibanejad's line uh, with the New York Rangers last round to great defensive success on home ice. They didn't see Nathan McKinnon's line all the time, in Denver, and I wonder if maybe getting to see a little bit more of them uh, will help even things out a little bit against the Avalanche tonight. But again, this is a, this is a heck of an offensive team. They're going to be a little bit shorthanded, missing Andre Barakovsky tonight, uh, an important second-line center uh, forward for them. Um, but the Avalanche still have so much weaponry offensively. 
Last question before I let you go. Braden Point, a game-time decision. Based on how you saw him in his return to action in Game 2, how important is it that they get him back? How big of a difference is it if he's in there? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, like, I was thinking to myself, okay, if he doesn't play, that means they, they, they had the same lineup as they did in the last two rounds when they were, like, unbeatable at home. Would they keep him out <laughs> just to get the old right. mix back? Right. And I'm like, no, nah, man, he's Braden Point. Like, he's real good. Even at, like, 60%, he's still better than anybody else they're going to put in this lineup. So, you know, there were times in game one he looked like himself. He was not himself in game two. He's still fighting back from that lower body injury. Um, they're about to hit the ice here at Amelie Arena, so we'll get a sense of whether he's going to play or not. Um, but if he doesn't, then, uh, then they'll just have to make do. Awesome stuff. Wish everybody go check out his work on the .com ahead of the game or follow him at Wyshynski, two Ys and an I, to follow along as the game goes on tonight. Appreciate the time. Anytime. Thanks, Eric. Senior NHL writer at ESPN, Greg Wyshynski, giving us all the good stuff ahead of Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final, 8 Eastern on ABC and ESPN+. Plus. It's Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we're going to talk a little NBA hot stove, things heating up for a couple teams and at least one coach. We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Stop me if you've heard this one before. There's some drama around Kyrie Irving. And man, this is a tough decision that's going to be made by the Brooklyn Nets, potentially Kevin Durant and the language that he wants to use around the public, around Kyrie himself. The future of the team that they put together, believing it would be dynastic, overwhelming, unbelievable, and has thus far been a big thud. It's all going to depend on what they decide to do with Kyrie and the disparate opinions about the decision that the Nets have are fascinating to me. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Let's start with setting the table for exactly what Kyrie's options are, as he's got a potential player option to return to the Nets here, but is likely looking for a long-term deal. Christian Winfield of the New York Daily News, who reports on the Nets and NBA for them, was on Canty and Carlin and said, here's what Kyrie's options are right now. Well, it's tough, right, because you look at the teams that have cap space and none of those teams are considered contenders, right? So there's probably two different routes that he can get to a contender. One is, you know, opting into this. Uh, he, has, he has until June 29th, I believe, to either opt in or opt out of the final year in his contract. If he opts into that, he can then negotiate a sign-and-trade to another team. Um, the, the other alternative is signing a deal as a free agent, maybe assign a max deal with, with, I don't know, the Spurs or a team that, that could clear enough cap space to sign them. And maybe you play until December 15th, right? And then after December 15th, teams are allowed to trade players that they just signed, right? So you do a little stint in maybe San Antonio, maybe Detroit, wherever it is, with the agreement that once the moratorium passes and you can trade him, you move him to that team that you want to be on. Yeah, so – Essentially, there isn't really a place that has the money to give Kyrie what he can make if he opts into this year with the Nets. But does he want to stick around after what happened? And do the Nets want to trust him when he's played in 103 games and sat 123 during his time in Brooklyn? Well, Christian Winfield seems to believe that the Nets should prioritize him and that they're in a win-now situation, so their only option is a long-term deal. The best option right now for the Nets, in my opinion, is, hey, bring Kyrie in, 
make him happy, sign him to a long-term deal. You, you made your bet already when you signed him to the first one. You've got Kevin Durant. you still got Ben Simmons. If you think Ben Simmons is healthy and you think Kyrie is committed and you still have KD, you've got one of the most talented teams in all of basketball. You just can't mess it up. And I think that's what we're watching right now. It's like, I mean, if they find a way to mess this up, it's going to be terrible. And what what happened with, with KD, bringing KD, bringing Kyrie here to win a championship, if Kyrie walks, there, there is no championship. That, that doesn't happen. Okay, I would love to see what messing this up looks like if what we've already seen hasn't been messing this up. And I don't mean to throw shade, but you recruit players to come play with Brooklyn. You have defensive ratings that are historically bad. You lose one of the big three after accomplishing nothing in year one, midway through year two, you got a guy who just doesn't play or tell the team that he's going to show up when he is healthy. When he's not healthy, he's sitting for injury. He won't get vaccinated. They get swept by the Celtics. And if you disrupt this and screw it up, it would be a tragedy? What is there to screw up? What a terribly disappointing superstar alliance this has been and I can't believe anyone thinks the answer is more guarantees for Kyrie when he will not guarantee that he'll put on a uniform and play for you I think Alan Hahn was spot on today on Barton Hahn talking about how the leaks to the press about them being at an impasse the questions about where Kyrie might want to go instead that is all coming from Kyrie's camp because he recognizes he has no leverage there's a player right now who is acting like he's got leverage. Once again, Ian Begley said, sources close to Kyrie's side. So this is all from him. This is not a Nets putting it out there. Yeah. This is not a Knicks putting it out there. This is not the Lakers putting it out there. This is off the player who thinks he's got leverage. And I'm here to tell you, he doesn't. So the idea that they're in an impasse, which means the Nets are telling him, we're giving you a very protected deal that saves us from you. Right. And you're going to have to take it. And he's saying, hell no, I'm not signing that okay. unless it's a fully guaranteed what I'm worth. And the Nets are saying, we're not doing that. Yeah. So now, okay, well, we're going to go public and we're going to tell you that there's other teams that would want me and you're going to lose me for nothing. And, and one of those teams it's the doesn't Knicks. have any cap space. It's the Knicks. And the other team <laughs> has no way to get you. So where the, the whole thing is a bunch of BS. It's a bunch of garbage. Yeah. It does like it's all it's superficial. It shows you how out of touch he is yeah. and his side is about his value Listen. and who wants him. Couldn't be more right. It couldn't be more right. And this is a guy who at every turn prioritizes how he sees things. So maybe he's convinced himself that that's what's happening that there's an impasse. But not that we should trust Kyrie's own word, because in the past we've certainly seen how that's gone, and so have Boston fans for that matter. But back in April, when the Nets got swept by the Celtics, Kyrie did say, I really don't plan on going anywhere. He did say, there's no way I can leave my man seven. So maybe there's a part of him that takes some responsibility for putting together this team and it amounting to basically nothing so far. Maybe he feels like he couldn't leave without proving that he's a good team manager because back in April when he said he didn't plan on going anywhere, you might remember he also talked about 
quote unquote, managing this franchise with KD. Yeah, the same guy who told us they didn't really need a coach after they got the coach that they requested in Steve Nash and said, teams maybe don't really need a coach. Players could take turns coaching and then had to apologize to Steve Nash for that. Said, when I say I'm here with Kev, I think that really entails us managing this franchise together alongside Joe and Sean, just our group of family members that we have in our locker room and our organization. If this is how he treats his family members, man, and I'm terrified if I'm the Nets that this guy whose talent is undeniable, but whose availability is beyond inconsistent and not just for injury, but based on the whims of Kyrie's focus and passion and conspiracy theories. That is all a part of the story. And so is him saying he wants to manage the franchise. This mercurial, which is a very nice way, the nicest way of describing him, because he can have moments of incredible philanthropy, incredible leadership, and then there's other moments where he just, you're at a loss for how he views teammates and the team concept. If I'm the Nets, I am not coming anywhere near a long-term deal because that is guarantees for someone who cannot guarantee you anything. And if Kyrie says he's insulted by concessions in a contract that would protect the Nets, he's earned that doubt. He's earned the questions about when he'll be around and showing up for the team. That's the least he can do is sign a contract with some concessions that protect the Nets and say, I'll be around this time. I put it up for you guys at Sarah Spain. Do you think the Nets should give Kyrie a long-term deal? Tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast, bringing you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Going to get into Kenny Atkinson turning down the Hornets gig, too, after initially saying yes. No contract signed, but it was an agreement. It was announced, and now he's backed off of that. I want to ask you guys as well, with Michael Jordan at the helm over there, who we know takes things personally, how would you feel? about going up telling MJ, never mind. Is there another owner or front office person in any sport that you would less like to piss off than Michael Jordan? Well, get me that one too, at Sarah Spain on Twitter. We'll get into that. But coming up, it's baseball time. Is this Yankees team better than the 98 Yankees? And what did Mike Trout just do against the Mariners? And does it even matter if he's not doing it in the postseason? We'll get into all of it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. There is a squirrel on the loose at Cubs Pirates right now. It is probably the most exciting part of any Cubs game these days, but it is baseball time. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is proud to team up with Hello Alice to support small businesses, get access to small business resources, and learn about small business grants at HelloAlice.com. Well, it's about 170 degrees in Chicago, which means it's time for baseball, which means only one thing. Tim Kirkshin going to join us here on Spain and Fitz. Give us all the latest. Let's start with Mike Trout. Five home runs in that five-game series versus the Mariners. I, I mean, it's hard at this point to add to the lore, especially from you personally, Tim, when it comes to just how great Mike Trout is. But um, does this do anything for you? Or is at this point, it's all about <laughs> postseason success. 
No, this does something for me. Look, I <laughs> hope they make the playoffs, okay? I understand it's good for the game, but to not recognize what Mike Trout is doing on a daily basis, not just this year, but for the last 11 years, just means you're not watching the game. And, yes, everything would be better if the Angels made it. But to have a career – you know, not looked at properly because he's been on some pretty bad teams just isn't fair. This is this is baseball, Sarah. This isn't, you know, two great basketball players joining a team and that team takes off because they're touching the ball on every <laughs> possession. Mm-hmm. Mike Trout's the best player most people have ever seen. I saw Willie Mays. Willie Mays was better, but not many others. And I just hope we're celebrating what we're watching here whether they make it to the playoffs or not. It's so hard to do because baseball is so regionalized. Your own team has so many games, and even if they're not worth watching, like my Cubs, it's still hard to pull yourself away to see all the amazing things happening around the league. So we all do want it to happen in the postseason when he gets a little bit more of the spotlight and people can really understand just how great what it is watching is. Uh, Kirkshin, let's talk about the Yankees. Speaking of great, put into context what their start is like. Well, I had a guy on a balcony the other day yell at me from a way above. This happens all the time. He doesn't even say hello. He doesn't even use my name. He just yells, are they better than the 98 Yankees? So I, I have to explain, no, they're not, because that was one of the greatest teams I've ever seen, and that was in the middle of a Yankee dynasty. So they're not the 98 Yankees. Tony Gwynn asked me in 98 during the World Series, he said, and it was rhetorical, he said, are they really that good? And I said, Tony, they really are. So that's what that's how good they are now. They're being compared to the 98 Yankees and some other Yankee teams, the 58 Yankees that had this kind of ERA this deep into the season. It's been an incredible run, Sarah. They're, they lead the league in run scored. They lead the league in ERA. When you lead the league in both of those, you've got a chance to go 50-17 and 17 if they win tonight. And maybe as important as anything, their infield defense is way better than it was last year. First base, shortstop, catcher, third base, not even close. And put all that together, and you get, it, you get the, the fifth Yankee team ever to win 42 out of 52 games during any season, any stretch. That's how good this team has been. Talking to Tim Kirkshen here on Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Yeah, there was a lot of hype when they were beating up on my cubbies. I said, not a fair fight. Uh, this is telling us nothing about how good the Yankees are, just telling us how trash the Cubs are. But now it's the Rays, it's the Blue Jays, and coming up it's going to be the Astros. How much do you put? How much stake do you put into what you see uh, in that Yankees Astros series in terms of you know comparing them to another great team in the league? Yeah, well, I'll be doing Saturday's game at Yankee Stadium, Garrett Cole against Christian Javier, and I can't wait. Um, I put a lot of weight in you know playing good teams, but the Yankees have a winning record against every team they've played this season. <laughs> The last team to do that was the 1969 Orioles, who had a winning record against every team they played that entire season until they got to the World Series and lost to the Miracle Mets. So when you're ever compared to the 69 Orioles, which was a stunningly good team, 
uh, you, you perk up. But, yes, they got to play the best teams. But they've already played them, and they've beaten everybody, and they've beaten them in a variety of ways. But mostly they've beaten them because their starting pitching has been spectacular. Sarah, their starter's ERA is almost a half a run lower than the next best. That's the Astros. That's an enormous gap at this early in the season. It just shows you how well the Yankees have pitched, especially out of the rotation. Well, and certainly it's making you feel a little better if you're the Yankees about Garrett Cole being not at the top of that list. You don't feel quite as bad about his performance if everybody else is crushing it, right? Yeah, Nestor Cortez has been their best pitcher this year. Again, this is the beauty of baseball. Is that Garrett Cole is one of the maybe five best pitchers in baseball. And, uh, you know, a short little chunky guy with a weird mustache has outpitched him <laughs> out of the what started to be the fifth spot in the rotation. But I'll tell you, I spoke to Aaron Boone alone in spring training, just the two of us. I ran through his team, went through the rotation. I said, Nestor's your fifth guy, right? And he looked at me like our fifth guy. He said, Nestor's going to make the all-star team. This was in spring training. Aaron Boone <laughs> saw this coming from this guy. So this is no mirage. He was really good last year. He's been even better this year. And when he out pitches, for the most part, Garrett Cole in your rotation, your team's in pretty good shape. Tim Kirkshen here with me on Spain and Fitz solo Spain tonight. Uh, tell me how big of a deal Mookie Betts injury is. If it is just a couple weeks, how big of a difference is that than if it's an extended absence? Well, I had one of the Dodger guys whisper to me the other day, and he's a little biased. He said, Mookie's the best player in the world. And <laughs> I don't think he's better than Mike Trout, but he's great. And his his May was ridiculous how good he was. When you look at him maybe being the premier defensive player at any position in the major leagues, that's really saying something. He hits the ball out of the ballpark. He might be the best base runner in the major leagues also. So, yes, this is a huge loss for the Dodgers, even if it's two weeks, because they got a bunch of pitchers who are injured, and the team just isn't scoring runs like we thought they would. Their defense is going to take a hit without them. So the Dodgers have to hope it's only two weeks. But keep in mind, he had a hip injury last year that he played with for a while, and one of their guys told me, you have no idea how much that affected him, but he wouldn't let anybody know that. So I think we're going to – we've got to get a more honest Mookie coming back to say, look, I'm okay, I've got this figured out, and come back healthy. Tim Kirkshen with me here, Solo Spain on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. All right, I've put it off long enough. I like to mess with Mets fans because they're easy to mess with, and usually something goes wrong. I mean, they even manage to light their own minor league ballparks on fire when they try to have fireworks. So it's easy to get after them. But – 45 and 24 sitting atop at the NL East, but looking behind, there are some teams that are trying to make their way up there. How confident are you in the Mets to keep up the top of the table there? Well, the Mets are going to the playoffs. I'm certain of that because they've got Scherzer coming back sooner rather than later. It appears they've got Jacob deGrom. He will be back. Let's let's say around the all-star break. Let's for everyone's sake, because it's good for the game. I have great faith in the Mets. The Mets lead the National League at run scored, and their pitching is going to get a whole lot better here pretty soon. So, um, And I like the way they play defensively, and Buck Showalter has made a huge difference on that team. So imagine adding a healthy and fresh DeGrom for the rest of the way, a healthy and fresh 
Scherzer for the rest of the way to a team that's 21 games over 500. So I think they're going to win the division, but we've learned from last year especially, never, ever, ever count out the Braves. And never, ever, ever count on the Mets. I didn't say it. You did, Tim. I think I, I think I heard you say it. Uh, thank you for the time, Kirkshen. Always appreciate it. Okay, Sarah. Thank you. Always love talking to Timmy, even when my baseball team is a horrific embarrassment. I can look longingly over at other teams that are somewhat functioning and hear all their good praises from Tim. Coming up, we'll get into some quickies, which includes, includes or incurs, maybe we'll talk cheese curds, includes a Sue Bird tribute. It's coming up next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Not surprisingly, as the Warriors are celebrating their win with a parade a lot of folks are turning their gaze to the offseason for the NBA, the biggest story being Kyrie Irving. We'll get back into Kyrie and a big decision for the Nets, plus Kenny Atkinson reneging on a deal with the Hornets and the other owners and front office folks you do not want to make mad, a.k.a. Michael Jordan, the one hearing from Kenny that he was going to stay with the Warriors. We'll get into all that. It's Spain and Fed Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. But before we can get to that, a whole bunch of other stories across the sports landscape. And as you all know, when we got too much stuff and not enough time, there's only one way we handle that around here, and it's quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. We have spent a lot of time on this show talking about the never-ending stream of bad headlines for the Washington Commanders and owner Dan Snyder. Well, it continues. In fact, the other day when we were talking about it, there were so many that I forgot about the financial allegations levied at the team for potentially cooking the books and not giving enough revenue to the league and other places, including their season ticket holders. Completely slipped my mind because I was so focused on the countless other scandals currently embroiled in. And... One of them is now uh, raised to the level of Congress. Uh, the initial investigation into a toxic workplace culture uh, woke some people up to serious issues at the team that are kind of more widespread that include NDAs that are signed in order to protect businesses and employees from horrific behavior. And the conversation around the commanders has elevated to the point where there are now Congress people who are alleging that new bills and laws should be brought in front of the government and passed to protect people from those kind of NDAs. So that's the kind of shame and embarrassment that Dan Snyder is bringing to the league and to his team. And now he's doubling down by refusing to testify before Congress on June 22nd. He first declined the initial invite from the House Oversight Committee, saying that he would be out of town. And they followed up to say that, like Commissioner Roger Goodell, he could testify virtually. He would be able to be accommodated to his timing and space in France instead of America, and they would love to hear from him. Well, Dan Snyder's lawyer followed up by saying that his business conflict was scheduled long before, can't be rescheduled, and that they would be concerned that he would not have counsel physically present with him. Now, if we're speaking realistically, you can kind of understand why Dan Snyder wouldn't want to get in front of Congress and either perjure himself or admit to all of the horrific things that he is alleged to have done and that the team is alleged to have tried to hide. But it's not a great look when a House Oversight Committee spokesperson tells ESPN, 
if Mr. Snyder was truly committed to cooperating with the committee's investigation, he would have accepted the committee's invitation to testify about the commander's toxic workplace culture. As the chairwoman's letter made clear, the committee has been more than accommodating. His refusal to testify sends an unmistakable signal that Mr. Snyder has something to hide and is afraid of coming clean to the American public on and on. I mean, no mincing of words there. And while I keep saying it and it never comes true, you do have to wonder how many of these things can happen before the league finally says whatever risks we run forcing his hand in selling the team are not as bad as the continued embarrassment and shame and spotlight he's putting on that team and our league with his behaviors. Hasn't happened yet, but man, getting in front of Congress, refusing to testify, all of the myriad accusations, you have to believe that makes a difference in some way. All right, next story. Quickies. Speaking of that, quickly, we talked to Ari Chambers early in the show, but there was a march today for Brittany Griner in New York as her time in Russian detention center passes over 120 days. Uh, really sad update to that story as it was just her four-year wedding anniversary with her wife, and there was a call arranged for them to speak. They have not spoken on the phone. She has not been able to speak to any family members or friends in her four months wrongfully detained in Russia, and... The staffing at the U.S. Embassy that was meant to be picking up and facilitating that phone call from Russia to her wife was not there. No one ever picked up the phone. She called 11 or 12 times. No one picked up at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow who was supposed to patch the call through. Just heartbreaking. And I'll tell you, I see a lot of people commenting about that story online. I would urge you to remember that your flippant and pointless social media comments are particularly pathetic when you know nothing about a very serious case that is a life or death matter. And if you can't imagine what it would feel like for a loved one or friend of yours to be wrongfully detained in Russia in the middle of a war with no contact with friends or family, and that doesn't inspire empathy within you instead of BS Twitter takes, I'm seriously concerned for you. Next story. Quickies. Sue Bird wasn't going to announce her retirement. She was going to let it play out and decide, but she did make up her mind and decided she would let people know this is the last year. And so the first of many teams honoring her happened at the Storm Liberty game. Storm got the win. Sue hit a late three to sort of seal the deal. And this was a little bit of the incredible moment of her home city honoring her before that game. I am Sue Bird. Take one. Not a lot of people do something for their entire lives. You know, I've been doing this since I was five or six years old. To be able to do something and get paid for it that you love to do, you know, that's gotta be everyone's dream, you know? So that's why I think it'd be great if I played the WNBA. For every athlete, sometimes it really just comes down to, you know when you know. There isn't necessarily a, a recipe for it, you just know when you know. But knowing it was going to be my last game in New York is really what started the thought process around announcing that this would be my last year. I'm going to be able to play in front of people that really watched me grow up, right? And that's, that's really special to me. Yeah, it was incredibly special. And I had to wonder if the Liberty got a little bit concerned about honoring her right before the Dagger 3. Uh, and a lot of pressure on Sue now. Everywhere she goes, she's going to have 
the knowledge that people are maybe showing up to, to see her for the last time. She's going to be getting weird chairs made out of, you know, basketball rims and things like that. She got a jersey of all sorts of cut-up New York jerseys. Uh, the rest of that video went on to have a whole bunch of New York athletes singing her praises. Uh, pretty cool. And I think, while it may be a little awkward for her in the moment, I think years down the line she'll reflect on these games and these uh, really getting her flowers in the moment uh, really fondly. She'll be grateful that she did it. But knowing Sue, she'll be a little bit a little bit embarrassed at the at the incredible shows put on by all the other teams. All right, next story. Quickies. Last one here. We were talking a lot about the U.S. Open on Friday heading into the weekend and Phil Mickelson's disastrous start. Uh, he didn't make the cut. And, in fact, if you're the PGA, U.S. Open went pretty well for you because the live players were an absolute mess. There were 15 live players in the tournament. Only four of them made the cut. Only four of 15. The top finisher from the live tour was Dustin Johnson, and he was at plus four. So while Rory didn't win, which would have been particularly good for the PGA, he's become sort of the people's champ the way he's talked about the Live Tour. They got a great battle between Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris, and of course, heartbreak for Zalatoris. He's had nine major starts, and he's been in the top ten six times, second place three times. He said in the presser afterwards, what I wouldn't give for a couple of inches here or there because I would be a three-time major champion. He's still sitting on none. But that back and forth, two young, new, fresh faces – while some of the live guys wilted, you know the PGA was happy watching that. You did want to see something better out of Zalatoris and Rory, though. They both were in the mix and couldn't quite finish. Happy for Fitzpatrick. Cool moment there. Coming up, we're going to talk Title IX month-long celebrations with Allison Glock. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You guys are cracking me up. I asked if you think the uh, Nets should pay Kyrie on a multi-year deal. We'll get into some of your answers, but I like this uh, at Tino Ladobo. I would pay Kyrie by the game right after he plays. I'd hand him a check right there in the locker room. <laughs> that might be the safest way to go about it. Uh, it's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Happy to welcome an executive producer for W Studios and the woman behind some of the great content that's going all over ESPN, ABC, Disney platforms for the 50th anniversary of Title IX, Allison Glock. Glock, let's just start with W Studios. This was a big announcement at last year's ESPN W Summit. So tell people sort of what it is and, and, and how these projects are some of the first things to come out of it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, w Studios is basically a content hub for everything for, by, and about women creators and sport. And so we have films, we have shorts, we are going to have podcasts, we're going to have books, we're going to have all these things where we elevate women's voices and have that authentic experience reflected in the creative in a really new and fresh way. One of the first things was the Dream On 30 for 30 that just ran. I have to admit, I was on the air doing this show when it ran, and I'm watching all the you know people talking about it from Candace Parker to our ESPN folks to the players from back in the day like Rebecca Lobo, and I'm, I'm getting really jealous, so I had to watch it after <laughs> the fact. But um, what an incredible debut. Tell me about how that came together and, and why that team had so much footage. Yeah, I mean, that was a real testament to, first of all, 30 for 30, investing in women's stories and telling the first uh, women-based multi-part in that series, which is incredible. And then just telling the history of that team and what would eventually become now the WNBA and the legacy of all of these incredible players. You yeah, had 96 this- women's uh, dream team basketball. Correct. Yeah. And all of that archival 
is really what made that that series just sing. It's just amazing to see these folks like Don Staley, who are household names now, when they were just like kids, really, um, you know, doing this foundational uh, athletic feat that that went on to have this incredible legacy. And they really embraced it. Like all the players just really loved it. Yeah, they. I mean, some of them that came to our uh, summit in New York or ESPNW summit in New York, you could tell how grateful they were to have this attention and, and these memories and this time spent on the things that they did and, and how they contributed to the creation of the WNBA. Talking to Allison Glock, executive producer of W Studios, um, you know, one of the things I found so fascinating about that, because I talk about this a lot in terms of content around women's sports is storytelling, stakes, stats why do we care right and with men's sports it's more of an opt-out situation whether or not you choose to be interested you're going to hear about lebron and nfl and everything else but with women's sports so often it's an opting in it's i'm choosing to go find things and they're harder to find so so many examples from dream on are exactly the kind of stuff that triggers interest especially if it was covered live like rebecca lobo getting called out by her own coach who's like <laughs> telling the press that she might replace her in the months leading up to the Olympics after she's been with the team traveling to Siberia and, you know, taking hits left and right. That kind of juicy tea, Allison, is just the kind of thing we like in sports. We say we like the X's and O's, but everybody likes the drama. Yes, for real. And like one thing I've learned with this whole, not just that, that series, but the whole 50, 50 initiative is that there are so many stories to be told. And if you put them out there, people do respond to them. You know, again, that observation you just made is genius, by the way, it is the opposite of opt out. You have to search, 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 you know, command, command F every story. But when you do find uh, these narratives, people love them. And, and there is so much to unpack, you know, for better or worse, there's a lot that's untold and what I've realized in making all this content and, and having the privilege of executive producing so much is just once it's exposed, people really come to the yard. Like they, they love it um, right. far and wide. And it's been great to see. So dream on has hit and everybody can find it all over streaming if they didn't see it live. And I'm sure it will re air on various ESPN platforms, multiple times terrestrially as well. The other big project is this 37 words and talking to Allison Glock, who's the mastermind behind a lot of the content coming out of ESPNW's W studios around the 50th anniversary of title nine. And Allison, this 37 words is I just talked to the directors for my podcast that's going to run tomorrow. And the thing that I loved is that they, when they were approached by ESPN, it was, we want to do something really big. So when you heard that as part of the ESPN world for however many years you've been here now, how excited do you get when ESPN says, we want to go big on the 50th anniversary? Yeah, no, I was really stoked to be in a lot of those early conversations. And, and I will just tell you, speaking of tea, it started out as being like, well, maybe we can carry a weekend. And then after we, re- <laughs> I guess so you were the one that was like, I want to go big. <laughs> the only one, let's be fair. But I was certainly one who said, I think we can manage more than a weekend. Uh, and now it's become a whole month. And one of the anchors is this 37 words, which is another four part, four hours. And it's the civil rights journey of Title IX. And it's just this incredible historical look back, but also a really great portrait of where we are in the fights around Title IX currently. And, you know, from like soup to nuts, everything you would want to know laced through with all of those juicy narratives you were just talking about. Um, And it kicks off the first episode with a conversation between Billie Jean King and Gloria Steinem. And they had never sat down together before, these two icons uh, of the feminist movement. And 
to see them just react to each other. And it was just charming and wonderful and, and actually historic. And we got all of it on film and that's just the very first scene. And right. there's just incredible content in it. Yeah, there's so many stories to be told. And I think people who think they know what Title IX is all about, they're probably wrong because we just haven't had it hammered home to us over the last couple of decades. What a big game changer it was across educational opportunities, harassment, rape, and other um, potential conflicts that pre prevent you from getting a fair and equal education. And of course, the sports world is where so much of the focus is. And you guys tell stories across all of that, um, including some really unsung heroes of early women's sports that were not doing it for the money. There were no NIL deals. There weren't big sponsorships and some of the sacrifices that they made and sort of paved the way for the women that are really enjoying um, the height right now and a major pivot point for women's sports. What are some of the surprises that you had while diving into this Title IX storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things. Um, one is how active the fight is right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like all of our civil rights, if we sleep on them, they're gonna, they go away. <laughs> And so a lot of the narratives in 37 words are set in high schools where young women are taking up the mantle of, of the fight. And there was a team in Portland that, you know, they didn't have a field, a softball team. They didn't have a field and they've had to fight, fight, fight just to have a field at their school. They were playing, you know, at a nearby park um, with, there were no restrooms. And, and that was really hearkening back to, the, to Yale in the seventies, where we had this incredible story about the crew team, the women's crew team that also no changing rooms, no restrooms, no proper equipment. And so we have come a long way, but when you juxtapose those and you see the struggle is, is so similar, you know, there's still so much more road to travel. That was sort of a surprise to me. Um, and the other thing was just how weaponized this legislation can and and is sometimes can be and is and um you know that's current currently playing out in a battle over trans athletes and their right to play uh and their right to personhood frankly and so it's just been a real education yeah. <laughs> ironically about what Titan I can be and should be and how we need to really remain vigilant uh to to secure these rights for women and girls in the future I couldn't agree with you more. And it's such a sad discovery, maybe because we've always been told the positives of Title IX, but in leaping into this across multiple platforms myself this month, there are so many sad things I learned about, you know, 87% of FBS schools do not have as many opportunities for girls sports as mm -hmm. enrollment. Uh, so that's not compliant. Uh, you can count male practice players as female participants for the Department of Education's purposes when it comes to Title IX. You could double and triple count female athletes that don't even participate in, say, indoor, outdoor track. You can count them three times as long as they do cross country. There's so many ways that we are not actually fulfilling Title IX in, in the spirit of the law, but just barely scratching the letter of the law in order to try to act like we're in compliance. And it's really sad how reactive the law is. So 50 years later, we still haven't quite gotten it right, but there is very much to celebrate. And uh, 37 Words, which premieres the first parts tomorrow night, uh, tells a ton of that stuff. And I think Dream On as well, the 30 for 30, uh, shows how much uh, that opportunity can lead to interest, can lead to uh, groundbreaking things like a women's professional league. Allison, you're crushing it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking <laughs> to me about this stuff. No, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for elevating and lifting uh, this to everyone's consciousness. As you always do, you are fighting the good fight and I salute you. Well, as uh, Gloria Steinem said, you're no one's passing on a torch. We're just gonna light each other's and uh, keep moving. Right on. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Allison. Good stuff from Allison. I uh, wanted to make sure I talked to her tonight. I'm off. 
for the rest of the week. I'm going to D.C. for our ESPNW Global Sports Mentoring Anniversary with the State Department, so I'll have the great honor of introducing and speaking to Dr. Jill Biden and Billie Jean King and a bunch of other great folks about the mentoring that we're doing around the world with the SBNW and top business leaders to help bring the power of sport um, to other countries and really uh, the message of Title IX of equality and opportunity. So want to make sure I got that in and let you all know to make sure you watch 37 Words Parts 1 and 2 premiere tomorrow. And there will also be a post-show conversation uh, that I'll be a part of so you can hear us chatting about some of the things that we watched in the first two parts of the documentary. It's really, 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 really good. I recommend you watch it. Coming up, we're going to pay off our social questions of the day. You guys have some thoughts. Some thoughts, I said. Some thoughts is what I said. You have some thoughts. We're going to tell you to them next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Well, it's not as bad as it's been for the Lightning. They're only down one nothing to the Avs early on in this game three at the Stanley Cup final. But as we talked about earlier, uh, they have made a habit of getting behind to this team. And they will be in big, big trouble if they can't figure out a way to pull this win out tonight. Going down 0-3. Never good. It's Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain. ESPN Radio. ESPN App. Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance and we're going to get to a little more conversation about Kyrie and the Nets' decision here. Also, Kenny Atkinson, uh, who – let's start there with Kenny Atkinson because I actually don't blame him if the decision that he made is best for him and his potential as a coach. He has bounced around the last couple years. He was a head coach in Brooklyn, didn't work out. He uh, spent some time uh, – I'm trying to remember where he was before the Warriors. It was uh, it was the Clippers. He was an assistant with the Clippers and then got to the Warriors. And this opportunity, as, as big as it might seem with the Hornets, if he doesn't feel ready for that and you don't do well, you last a year or two there, getting that third opportunity after it hasn't worked twice um, – is difficult. So if he looked around and said, you know what, I would rather learn under Steve Kerr for a little bit longer, make sure I'm in the right situation at the right time, totally fine with that. The only problem is you got to call up Michael Jordan, the owner of the Hornets, and tell him, I know we didn't sign anything, but it's already been made public. We've talked about it for days, and now I'm going to go ahead and back out. He says family reasons. We don't know anything about those reasons. We won't, you know, guess at them. Um, but I did ask you all, of all the people, you're going to get mad. I don't know if Michael Jordan's the guy. I somehow feel like he'll be able to infuse his Hornets players with his pettiness to the point that the Hornets beat up on the Warriors every single game next year, regardless of whether they're any good. Just that game will always be a Hornets dub because Michael is so mad at Kenny Atkinson for pulling out of the deal. Um, I asked you guys if there were other owners or front office members you wouldn't want to make mad. Scott Carbone nailed it. The one that I would not want to make mad is Pat Riley. I just had Quentin Richardson on my podcast and he described his first meeting and he said the Godfather vibes like Pat Riley's always given Godfather vibes. Uh, Tim Campbell doesn't want to make Pete Carroll mad because he doesn't think anyone's ever seen him mad. I would argue there's probably been sometimes. Uh, Kevin Costa, I wouldn't want to uh, pee off Jimmy Haslam by playing my guts out with a broken shoulder for an entire season because he seems like the kind of guy who would then replace me with a serial sexual predator who he says is more of an adult than me or something like that. It's very specific, Kevin. Very specific, totally made-up situation. Uh, Angry Bears fan dad man said, not an owner, but it's Bobby Knight. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> Anybody in sports, I don't want a chair thrown at me. Um 
those are some good ones. But Kenny Atkinson hopefully uh, able to make amends with the Hornets team before letting them know that he or, or while letting him know that he would be uh, rejecting that job. Mike Brown's still going to take that job with the Kings. We'll see how that goes for him. Uh, it's time for the progressive NBA snapshot here on Spain and Fitz Solo Spain tonight. And it's talking Kyrie. Uh, the snapshot is, of course, that we are going to spend this offseason, depending on how long it takes, discussing what Kyrie and the Nets should do. Kyrie is not a guy who wants to play a prove-it one-year contract. He believes he deserves more. The Nets are not a team that wants to throw a bunch of guaranteed money and multi-year deals at a guy who, again, has played 103 games and missed 123. Many of those because of personal choices like refusing to get vaccinated or simply not showing up and not telling the team that he wouldn't be showing up. So you understand their reticence in, in, in signing him to a longer-term deal. Well, Bobby Marks says a lot of those rumored teams that people are saying might try to grab Kyrie Irving if he doesn't re-sign with the Nets on that player option, I don't know if they really have the ability to do so. He was on Barton Hahn. You're not getting to the Lakers with cap space. You're not getting to the Clippers with cap space. That's the reality of it when you have Anthony Davis and LeBron and Paul George and Kawhi. There's no... There's no clear path in New York, and, and Brooklyn is not going to do a deal for Russell Westbrook. I mean, come on. And I think for New York, I think, yeah, if we start seeing the Knicks in the next uh, you know week start moving $40 million in salary, do they think they can get Kyrie? <laughs> I think Brooklyn will probably start filing tampering charges here. And, you know, I think the only leverage that Kyrie Irving really has is him opting into his contract and saying, you know what? I'm going to play out the year at an expiring contract and we'll, we'll revisit these contract talks uh, next year, or maybe there's an extension to be, to be had here, but I don't see any of the players here. I don't see Bradley Beal or Zach Levine, any of these players, James Harden that have leverage because as I said, this is not the off season to, where there's, you know, all of a sudden 15, $16 million that have money to go out and spend on a player like mm. him. Yeah. He doesn't have leverage. The options are opt in play another year, hope you can make something of recruiting KD to Brooklyn and see what Ben Simmons has to offer as a new part of this trio. Opt in and tell them, I'm opting in, but I would like to be traded because I'm going to get the money that you're paying me, but in a trade situation, maybe I can get somewhere I want to go and you can get a piece that you trust more. That's a lot of things to get coordinated you got to get something that the Nets want back as well. And a lot of the ideas, I mean, I'm hearing this, send Kyrie to play with LeBron and send Westbrook back to play with KD again. I mean, that's just not a swap that the Nets are going to do. For as unlikely as it is that Kyrie will be available all the time, his ceiling is still so much higher than what Russell Westbrook is doing right now. So as, as nice as that fairy tale of putting those two guys back together on either sides of the coast and seeing what they could do reunited and it feels so good, I don't think that's a move that the Nets want. So Kyrie would have to opt in and believe that they would be able to work out a deal that's suitable for him. So my guess is that Kyrie, despite trying to drum up that there is an impasse, that there is many opportunities that he could take other than that short deal with the Nets, my guess is that he's going to end up figuring out that his only option is to opt in with the Nets, give it another go, and then after that, who knows? Is this a Nets team that builds around KD instead? I certainly would. Is it a place that KD wants to stay after being recruited by Kyrie and, and, and it falling apart, not fulfilling the expectations of that super team? And how much actual quote-unquote management will Kyrie be doing after saying that he and KD were going to be managing this franchise? 
along with the folks in the front office. That's the NBA Snapshot brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more at Progressive.com. You guys seem to agree. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I asked at Sarah Spain, do you think the Nets should sign Kyrie Irving to a multi-year extension? 9.8% of you said yes, but many of you in the comments admitted your allegiance to teams that often play the Nets and that you only voted yes because you want Brooklyn to suffer. The 90.2% of you that voted no are on the same wavelength as I'm. And what sucks is he is so talented. And it's just frustrating to see the self-sabotaging behavior. And I am not one to unilaterally criticize Kyrie. He's done some incredible work charitably. He's incredibly supportive of his WNBA counterparts. He's very passionate about the issues on which he speaks, and he's passionate about things outside of basketball, and I respect that. But at some point... You're in a partnership with your teammates, your owners, and I love player empowerment, but it's gone too far if you're able to get yourselves tons of guaranteed money and just not show up to work or make decisions that prevent you from playing half the games. Or in the case of some players, sign a max deal and a year later with four years left on it, force your way out. How's a team supposed to build that way? How's the front office supposed to make decisions based on the idea that you'll be around for five years and after a year you force your way out? There's a delicate balance there. And I think, unfortunately, Kyrie's made things really tough for the Nets and really tough for KD. You're hearing everyone talk about KD needs to win one without the Warriors. Can he do it with Kyrie? We're going to be talking about it a lot this offseason. Freddie and Fitzsimmons are going to be talking about it when Kyrie and KD join them next. It's Spain and Fitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.